Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. We've got big questions this week. Uh, is Extinction Rebellion giving protest a bad name? And do we need tougher laws? Is there a cultural cringe at our universities? And is that why they're killing off Australian history? And has SCOMO caught the inquiry disease and become a do-nothing PM? As he might say, we'll look into it. <laughs> uh, and I can't wait for our book, books and culture segment today. Uh, we'll be looking at the winners of the Nobel Prize for economics and the tremendous work they've done uh, to alleviate poverty, a work of political economy on the so-called populist revolt, a new book the bank bashers will love, uh, and some classic Stephen King. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Also in the studio with us is the IPA's Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. Good morning. And the National Manager of Generation Liberty, Renee Gorman. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you back. Uh, don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au where you can join or donate anytime you like. Uh, and if you're on the app, listening to us on the app, uh, this is your chance to give us a review. Even before you've heard the show, just five stars. Five stars is good. It all helps in the rankings. Uh, now, as mentioned, uh, for anyone who hasn't been living in a cave, last week's news was dominated by Extinction Rebellion and their actions across our major capital cities. Uh, we're going to talk about the wash-up of that and also some, uh, some new laws that are being proposed to deal with protests and uh, particularly Extinction Rebellion. Chris Berg. That's right. So the um, Queensland Palaszczuk government is rushing through anti-protest laws in response specifically to the Extinction Rebellion climate protests, which, as you say, have been um, uh, really most of the major capital cities in the country. These laws are very, very controversial, not just with the Extinction Rebellion protesters and I thought it might be worth talking about this because talking about protest laws and the freedom or constraints on protest is actually, a, it turns out it's a theme of this podcast, Scott. So the laws um, in Queensland, they um, provide for potential jail sentences for up to two years for someone for disrupting transport or, um, or disrupting business. They have some increased search powers, but the most interesting one and the um, one that's been mostly focused on in this is the use it's targeting the use of protest devices and implements so there are these things called sleeping dragons and sleeping dragons um are um uh, as i understand them not having been in many protests myself and certainly having chained myself to very few buildings um they involve handcuffs and PVC piping. The idea is that you handcuff yourself together. So let's say we handcuff together around this table. Normally the police would just be able to cut the handcuffs. But if you handcuff yourself through a PVC pipe, then the police don't know where to cut. Um, and they're not going to cause you harm. Um, then they're not going to damage you. So they can't just work at you with bolt cutters. On top of that, they they might add concrete or wire mesh. Anyway, anyway so these sorts like, of apparently it then becomes called a dragon's den. If, mm. if you've got multiple of them, although I'm quite suspicious about that because I spent at least ten minutes trying to Google dragon's den protest, and the only 
thing that came up was the bill. <laughs> um, nonetheless, I, I, I did the same thing. I googled Dragons Den, and all I got was sort of fantasy <laughs> novels and video, things like that. Video so, games, yeah, and yeah, 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 Blizzard games and um, things like that. But but uh, but apart from the the inherent interest of um, uh, what is clearly innovation in protest movements, um, which is great to see. Um, Gideon, what's your what, what's your take on this legislation? Do, um, it, it, do from from an outsider's perspective, does it look heavy handed? Um, is this targeting a genuine problem? What do you think? I never thought I would ever utter this sentence, but I think Anastasia Palaszczuk is actually showing leadership in this. <laughs> I I can understand why Queen and that might be being a bit too generous, and I can understand why Queensland is the first cab off the rank because the Extinction Rebellion lunatics have been targeting Brisbane in particular. They brought the city to a standstill, uh, she, and in, in some ways, she doesn't really have much of a choice. Um, I am suspicious of measures that are intended to wind back public protest. I'm suspicious especially of uh, legislation which targets particular items which might otherwise be innocuous. You know, we have debates over should spray paint, the, the sale of spray paint, for example, be limited to crackdown on graffiti. So I, I, instinctively I put this in the same basket, but my reading of the exposure draft of the bill to me says this is targeted and this is limited uh, in, a, in a reasonable way. My reading of it is that the search powers for searching vehicles for these devices, for example, apply if there is a reasonable suspicion that a dangerous attachment device has been, has been or will be used to disrupt a relevant lawful activity defined as interfering with transport, stopping somebody from entering or leaving a place of business or holding the operation of planted machinery. I think that's uh, targeted enough to uh, remove these devices and... To me, it meets the the trade-off between incursions on our liberty and to make sure that the right of people to protest doesn't impinge on the other right of other people to get to work, to go about their day, uh, and and to be free of serious economic damage. I mean, the the protests in Melbourne cost $3 million for... Something like 16,000 hours of police. Probably the only one that uh, part of it and uh, that pushes the boat out is, of course, the, uh, the will be that if you're having your possession implements that will be used yeah. for one of the, these protests. A reasonable I mean, suspicion that they yes, will Yes, it's a little bit like the anti-terror laws. Um, Hippies ob- with PVC is reasonable suspicion in that story. Then. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's yeah. probably... I mean, I'm, I'm actually with you. Uh, I was hoping to get a disagreement going, but I'm actually agreeing no, with I, you. But I think that... I'm a rival libertarian, but on some... You know, yeah. on, on some uh, although this is in keeping with libertarianism. I mean, this is the classic... You know, again, I make the point. You shouldn't... It, Protesting, fine. Using, you know, accessing devices, fine. But to use them to impinge on the rights of, of other people. I, I think it also it? highlights that these particular protests don't really understand the point of protesting, as in de- demonstrations like this in the past, they knew they were going to get arrested, they expected to get arrested, and that was kind of the point, is that you created the story around there was such a police presence and these new protesters of, you know, I hate the term, but the snowflake generation is like, I'm going to block traffic. This is all about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they get arrested like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got arrested for but blocking to, but traffic. To take, but to take the devil's advocate position, and I, I don't actually think I believe this, but um, uh, but nonetheless. Someone but, has but to is do it. Yeah, hasn't it <laughs> well, it'll be a boring podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, but hasn't it, isn't it pr- doing precisely what it is intended to do? 
in the sense that so they want to block traffic to draw attention to the fact that there is a climate catastrophe. It is called Extinction Rebellion. It's a massive global protest. All these things are true. Massive global protest that we have talked about for weeks and weeks in part because they're using tactics like, mm. quote, the sleeping dragon but or dragon's death. Isn't that a success from, from their measure of success? Isn't that a success? Yeah, that's, it comes down to what matters more to them. They have got their message across, but you have to be willing to take on the responsibility and the consequences of your actions. Well, no, they don't because they're they're you know um, trots. They don't. Yeah, they, they don't. And, and I made this point on on um, Sky on Sunday night. You know, uh, people are saying, well, they should be able to recover the costs. These people have no money. What are you going to do? Seize their bongs and sell them at auction? But but, but, um, but, but more to the but this is but to, to your point, Chris, and this which is, are illegal in Victoria, I have to say. Oh well, because <laughs> um, you might use tobacco in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, to your point, Chris, I actually read something on this. I can't remember. Some, some uh, head of some environmental charity, surprise, surprise. But they said, look, you know, people said the same thing about Occupy. Uh, the Occupy protesters a few years ago, people said, oh, you know, they're making a point about inequality, but they're not winning people over to their side because they're a nuisance and they're constructing shanty towns and everything else. Years later, all we hear about from the Democrats in particular in the US is inequality. Um, the same, the argument is that, yeah, p people might go through a little bit of um, short-term irritation now, but eventually it'll stick and then all we'll hear about, if we, because we don't hear enough about it already, is climate change and the climate emergency. Yeah, one of the things I want to focus on, though, and, and, and they are trots, and a lot of them were in Occupy and, and uh, you know... Uh, trots is a technical term. Yeah, so Daniel Andrews was saying, well, oh, you know, the, you know this, this doesn't help the environmental movement. These, these, the people who are organising Extinction Rebellion are not members of the environmental movement. They, they are actually um, uh, from, you know, they, they're trying to bring down capitalism, bring down the social order, initiate anarchy, heighten the contradictions, all the sorts of things that radicals like to do. And I, and I actually think it, this, this is actually a disgrace what they're doing in terms of uh, the measures that they're taking and the arrests that are being made. Because as you say, Renee, traditionally uh, what you do is um, you initiate some kind of an action, you have a sit down or whatever, you might be thrown out of somewhere, um, you get arrested, but essentially these are for you know misdemeanours. Um, now, my local library, library, and if you go on their website, libraries all over the country uh, are hosting Extinction Rebellion training sessions um, <laughs> where, where, no, no, well, this, this is deadly serious because, and I've, I've seen members of the environmental movement pointing this out, is that uh, this is not about honourable protest activity. Th these, these are creating criminal records that, that could destroy people's life chances. Now, in, in Victoria, for instance, um, there's no new laws but what has actually been triggered is not the usual sort of, you know, refuse to comply with a lawful order to move on. It's, uh, there were new laws passed uh, so that you can't interfere with the work of emergency workers. Mm. This was brought in because of assaults on paramedics and things. So you can go to jail for this. And this is what people are being charged under. And, um, and similarly with um, uh, the Queensland laws, they're responding to a, a change in tactics, which is... Um, uh, dangerous certainly to the um, impressionable young people that are being encouraged to do outrageous things. And, and again, Palaszczuk has a point. Uh, this, uh, M, um, the Honourable MT Ryan, uh, forgive me for not knowing uh, who that is, but the second reading speech is actually quite good. Because also we've seen around some of the Adani protests, the mine protests, some very, very dangerous measures. If you go and concrete yourself to a railway line, you better be damn sure there isn't a train about to roll over that hill. Yeah, I, I really agree and kind of connecting to 
another topic if I'm going to give it away. I was looking up Australian history topics at Sydney University and there's only three and one of them is called What Do We Want? Protest in Australia. And I do think that it comes down to you create other victims. So we've seen this with Antifa in America. So there was an incident where there was a speaker. I I can't remember the name of the speaker, but it was a typical conservative speaker. No one completely outlandish. And Antifa rocked up. And what a lot of people don't realise is Antifa's made up of professional protesters, but also made up of kids who were stuck on the street, who were homeless, who were brought in, who were brainwashed, who were told, this is your family now. Mm. And this boy convinced that this elderly Jewish man was in fact a Nazi, strangled him, he had a cardiac arrest, he almost died. He's now in jail Mm. for manslaughter, attempted murder, He's a victim as well. So uh, is he? No, 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 no. Oh, no I think they're I, both I, victims. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I see no, Renee's no, no. point. I see uh, Renee's point. We this, cannot. This is exploitation. It's exploitation. We cannot excuse. Uh, 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 not excusing what he did, but he's still a victim. To a point. Well, is he? I, I, I don't think we can de- deprive these people of agency. I think that's a, a soft touch. I don't think we can look at these lunatics. Uh, I'm a, children, maybe, but I don't know. I don't know about that. I want to put something else there at though, because you know, how do we feel about? civil disobedience generally. I mean, you know, the the case I always go back to is Frank Penholriak in Victoria, who during the 1980s refused to close his hardware store on a Sunday to protest the grave injustice of trading hour restrictions. Mm. Now, to my mind, that bloke is one of the greatest heroes in the history of the Commonwealth. Um, (laughs) Is it that he wasn't harming anybody else necessarily? Is it our subjective yeah. definition of what an unjust law is? Yeah, so I'm embarrassed to wrong? say... I'm embarrassed. This is a great question because um, I'm... Is it a rule of law issue? I'm kind of sympathetic to civil disobedience on things that I'm sympathetic to. And um, and I unfortunately, if I'd known that you were going to ask that question, then I would have read the book. But um, Jason Brennan has a... Um, Jason Brennan is a libertarian um, author and academic in the US, and he's got a new book called When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. And my understanding of um, his argument argument in that as well. In some circumstances, yes, you have to resist in an unjust state um, uh, and you have to do so by violating, you know, uh, those sorts of laws without, you know, seriously um, harming other people's rights as well. So I can right. see environments in which that's the case. But that's the and key the, the most obvious without harming other people's rights. Well, no, but but the, but it's not. It, but it's proportional harm. So yeah, you, okay. so would we be opposed to doing so in Nazi Germany? No, mm. like, you can't can't block a train in Nazi Germany. Yeah. Um, uh, we'd, we're, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. And so there's obviously a marginal choice. Now, I don't think that these um, these actions rise to that sort of level. But I do, it was interesting to see, um, and we should move on for this topic in a moment, but it was interesting to see um, on Friday there was a parliamentary committee hearing into these bills and the union movement was very upset. Now, the union movement doesn't really use these sorts of tactics um, with their um, with their protest movements and so forth and they don't traditionally try to tie themselves um, to things as the environmental protesters do. But they are very concerned that these laws are just so general that they the can Palaszczuk be used... Laws. The Palaszczuk laws. Yeah. That they can be used to prevent what they would see as you know m- more virtuous protest in that way. Yeah, um, the entering and, and leaving a building and, thing, I suppose. And you have to, yeah. you do have to worry when you see these sorts of um, legislative changes being made for just one specific type of protester. Mm-hmm. How will they be applied to the next 
protest? How will be that? How will they be applied to a protest against, say, something that we are sympathetic to, the lockout laws, or something like mm. that? Um, but yeah, so I, I do, I do actually do worry about these quite a bit. And uh, that is wending its way through the Queensland Parliament. So we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. Another thing we're keeping an eye on, there is a, uh, a Senate committee of inquiry into the uh, into nationhood, citizenship. Uh, what it means to be Australian under the uh, chairmanship of uh, Amanda, the wonderful Amanda Stoker. We talked about that um, last week um, on the podcast and uh, some of the submissions are throwing up some interesting issues. Uh, uh, the Australian has covered uh, uh, some submissions that we'll talk about in a moment that are saying that the nation's top universities are not pr interested in promoting the study of things in, in, that are Australian and are failing in their responsibilities as national institutions. Chris Bird, well, what's that's going on? That's right. So one of our friends um, uh, and an excellent scholar, Greg Malouche, he's a professor on, of history at the University of Wollongong, put in a really um, powerful submission, which, as you, as you mentioned, got um, some media this week. Um, he told the um, parliamentary inquiry that universities are, quote, primarily international in their loyalties and that they are they are not interested in promoting the study of things Australian and are failing in their responsibilities as national institutions. Now, the reason for that, and this is something that I've actually personally experienced as well when I've, you know, I'm a young scholar and just trying to think what am I going to study and what's the next paper I'm going to write and what's the next book I'm going to write. Well, um, what matters in academia is how highly ranked your publications are. So are you publishing in um, uh, the top journals in the world? Are you publishing in the top five or are you publishing in, a, in an A-star journal or are you just publishing down the rankings? And there are, there are formal rankings in, um, in many fields that actually list this is a good journal, this is a bad journal. Problem is that those top journals don't really rate Australian material very high. They're all American journals, almost uniformly American journals, some European, but almost uniformly American journals. And Americans are willing to publish American things, but if you publish, try to give them Australian content, they'll be like, oh, that's sort of a regional niche interest. Sorry, sorry Dr. Gorman, but who is this Joseph Carruthers guy? Exactly. No, <laughs> why, why should precisely, I care? Precisely. What's the bunny um, so, <laughs> so because academics aren't idiots, they respond to these incentives. So you make a decision to, instead of studying Australia and adding value back to Australia, you study international topics instead. And you study the sorts of things that will get into those top journals, then be part of your promotion document to become associate professor or professor or what have you. Um, and over time, we just end up having less and less scholarship into, um, into the things that matter for Australia. So this is the other side of the research that the IPA has done about the teaching. So the, the, the teaching of Australian topics and Australian history, um, there's a long um, uh, tradition of research at the IPA into that. But this is about the research people aren't researching in Australian history as well. And what Greg's done is tied that to, well, this is how we think of ourselves as is a that, nation. Is that all it is, though? Because I think you're being a bit soft on the universities. Oh, well, I don't think this is just maybe I am. that you can't it's get published in journals. It's not everything, but it's not nothing. I think it is. There is a anti-Australian feeling in, in universities. I, I went and researched the, the subjects that are available in Australian history at Melbourne University, Sydney University and Monash University, three of our biggest institutions. Uh, Melbourne University has uh, controversies in Australian history. Australia in the world from 1914 to 2014, which makes a point of mentioning Pauline Hanson in the, in the bio. Um, City Visions, Melbourne Intensive, which I found out is a holiday program where you just get to walk through the city. 
and get a get a pass. Look at graffiti. And then I do that in my work hours. And then um, I did that in my uni degree too, but I never got uh, any credit. You never for got it. credit. Mostly a, between pubs. There's a mixed subject: Australian Indigenous politics, which one of Theodora's friends attended and was told at the beginning of the class, as uh, if you are not Indigenous, you're not allowed to have an opinion in this subject. Well, they're here. Uh, and Sydney Sounds University right. has similar, similarly, um, you know, what do we want? Protest in Australia, Australian environmental history, um, and Monash again, Australia migrant nation, Australia black history. Every single one is something about how bad Australia is. A lot of it, like uh, how we should be that, guilty. That feeds into Chris's point, though, because if you are going to write something about Australian history, given the state of international scholarship, not just Australian scholarship, what's more likely to get a run? Uh, some sort of nice pastoral piece about, you know, Henry Parks or something, <laughs> or uh, the Australian experience of white colonialism versus Indigenous. You know, those are universal themes in academic uh, circles no, these but, days. Yeah, but here's the thing. No, no, think things have changed, and I, I think it... Um, uh, you know something's going on when uh, Greg Malouche, uh, extremely solid academic, you know, there, there, there's a unity ticket with Stuart McIntyre, uh, who, you know, we call... Of call Melbourne pe- University? Call, call, yeah, of, of, uh, uh, former uh, head of the Faculty of Arts at Melbourne University and, uh, you know, erstwhile communist uh, and historian. And he's from that generation that had a very left-wing interpretation of Australian history, but he was interested in Australian history as a thing. He wrote... Um, uh, books which attempted to grapple with Australian history in its, in its totality. Uh, we might have uh, the IPA may have actually critiqued those books. I think it was on Berg's bookshelf for a, for a long time. And <laughs> uh, and it, but then when uh, say Bella de Brera wrote her uh, audit of Australian history, which um, highlighted some of the subjects that Renee's talked about, you almost look back wistfully on someone of Stuart McIntyre's generation mm. who was solidly left-wing, but who were actually interested in Australian history being a thing, whereas now it's disintegrating. So that, but that's it's also... That's it's not just history. And all you're left, that, all you're left with... That's what I call the Jermaine Greer effect. It's just that today's lefties are so crazy, you look at somebody like Jermaine Greer and say, actually, she is making a lot but, of sense. But it's, it's, it's not yeah. just... So so we focus on history because, um, you know, obviously Stuart McIntyre and Greg Malusha are historians, but this is a problem across all the social science disciplines, certainly in my experience, that to study Australian specific things, to use specifically Australian data, to use Australian anecdotes in, um, in, in otherwise general um, uh, research projects is actually counted against you because it's mm. seen as regional. Now, I can understand why if you're, in, if you're sitting at a desk at Harvard University, you might think of Australia as regional, but that's because we're trying to market the, the incentives of academia are encouraging ourselves to market ourselves to the person sitting in the desk at Harvard University. Mm. Now, um, how precise are the government's going to deal with this problem? Because all academics think all reputation comes from being an American or um, certainly having international reputation, all that sort of thing. But it does create a serious problem that we pour a massive amount of money into research into Australian universities from a public policy perspective. And at the same time, people are disincentivized to study Academia. So, what, oh, sorry, Australia. So, um, in my adventures with Peter Reid, I met recently with a bloke from the Queensland branch of the National Tertiary Education Union, and obviously we didn't agree on a lot, but we did have very similar views on academic freedom, or at least the fact that it was a problem. And he 
in, he told explained to me that the phenomenon you are describing is actually having consequences for academic freedom as well, not just the content of courses, because increasingly academics who might want to write about uh, something more localised, something more niche, something that might actually be useful to Australia and Australians are being railroaded into more generalist, um, highfalutin areas of study that will rank in the international journals and this chasing of prestige and rankings and in turn funding and students and all sorts of other things is is creating a, a an environment in which academic freedom is being stifled. Now, I, you know, being the free marketeer I am, would have no problems with rankings and, and everything else if universities were public institu private institutions, but they're not. We are pouring billions of dollars into these organisations so that university administrators can engage in, frankly, empire building, competing against, I might add, institutions from overseas that are largely publicly funded themselves. It is, it is, it is competition with, with our money uh, uh, to perverse ends and it's producing nothing useful for the nation. It's actually uh, connected to that. I'm actually uh, not really... I wouldn't say I'm for the new measures the government was looking into, into um, funding at universities should be based on employment after... Universities. It sounds good on the surface, but all I feel like it's going to do, because it's just done on the university overall employment afterwards, it's just going to pour money back into the sandstone institutions, the prestige institutions, because that's what you're hired off. It's not how specific was your degree. It was Sydney University still has some of the highest employment ranks because you got into Sydney University, and yeah. it's and it's just seen as that, not because the course was very effective. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually very tentative about whether that will have the results... And worst of all, we'll create more law students. That's the last thing this country needs. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm reminded too many as it is. To, to roll back slightly a minute or so, I'm reminded of um, one of my favourite um, openings to a thesis, and this is a thesis from 1984 on Charters Towers, the city in Queensland, um, and it's a history of Charters Towers and contextualises Charters Towers in, um, in Queensland or North Queensland at the time. But the first sentence of the abstract is. The academic establishment has probably not been waiting anxiously for a PhD on Charters Towers, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, but yep. but it, but it is important. <laughs> yeah. So what do we do about this? Because uh, you know, surely it must be within our. Uh, given that it is public funding, given that we do have this uh, uh, system through the ARC grants and other incentives for universities, I mean. What, what so, can we do? So what the we do? The government actually has started doing this, and this is um, – last year there was the big kerfuffle about a whole bunch of um, ARC grants, Discovery Early Career Research Grants, um, were denied by the education minister because um, they weren't seen as you know directly relevant to Australia, and some of them were on like Native um, American populations and that sort of thing. And they and it wasn't clear that they were at all connected to um, the purpose of the Australian um, uh, Australian research funding system. Um, and this got everybody very very upset that they'd been denied, and the government responded by insisting that the ARC, the Australian Research Council, puts in a quote national benefit test. So now when you write a um, grant proposal to the Australian government, you have to ask, you have to demonstrate that it is of value to Australia, not just of intellectual interest or just general research value. Now, um, many of my academic colleagues are not a big fan of this new national benefit test. I think this is a really good idea mm. for obvious reasons, and I would make some further changes to the ARC system. Um, as well, but but it's that sort of thing that you could do. Now that's mm. a small thing, and and most academics are not even going for ARC grants. But um, it, it, at at the margin, we can start trying to direct all this money 
towards not national priorities but national benefits. I don't have any problem with the idea in theory, but do you really trust a bunch of bean counters from the Department of Education to appropriately adjudicate on what is of value to the country? Aren't we just going to end up with 50,000 more papers on climate change? Yeah, look, look, that's absolutely right. So you've still got entrenched issues about the sort of stuff that they fund anyway, but um, to the extent that it can be helpful. And remember, the ultimate decision-maker here is the minister. And the minister is an elected person. And the kerfuffle was all about the fact that the minister personally crossed off those names and crossed off those projects. Um, I think we should insist on the ministers having some degree of responsibility mm. for the sort of stuff that the government funds. Hear, hear. Do you think that it would? It, there's also the problem of you can put in, you know, put in, remove as many regulations as you want and put in systems to test subjects, but unless there's a cultural shift on campus on how we see Australia, mm. like it's still going to be te- taught through the lens of identity politics and we're all racist and Australia's terrible. And we, like, is that really going to solve the problem in the end? I, I think, yes, it's not incentivised, but there's also a w- cultural problem about how they look at Australia at universities. Yeah. Uh, no, and that's, but that's an intellectual debate for yeah, us Yeah, yeah. What, what they say yeah. Is it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition yeah. to, <laughs> ach- to achieve change. Exactly. We, we, yeah, we, exactly. we need both. And, and uh, that's the work of a lifetime that you've just described there, Renee. So um, uh, good luck achieving that cultural <laughs> change. So at um, least you'll be busy. <laughs> uh, now, I actually have a, a ready-made segue here, and I do love a good segue. Um, the House of Representatives has a standing committee on employment, education and training has in fact been conducting uh, an inquiry uh, at the request of the minister uh, into how Australia's research is funded. Uh, I found out about this because uh, there's featured in the Australian recently has been an astonishingly long list of reviews that the Morrison government uh, has uh, embarked upon or that are in progress and uh, there's been a bit of an accusation that they've become a bit review happy as an alternative to making decisions and, and that's only one of them. Um, Chris Berg, what do you make of this? Yeah, they really have. So this was um, another um, big front page story this week. The government has initiated not just one, not just 10, but 72 inquiries since September 2018 and has come into some criticism for running reviews rather than actually making policy and a more sophisticated version of that criticism is, well, in fact, what you're doing is handing a lot of policy decision-making over to the people who run the reviews Mm. um, and you're relying on bureaucrats or um, regulators to actually start setting the agenda of your own government, which is a bit of a disaster. Um, Now, the question that I will raise first for you, Gideon, the accusation has been made that this is a do-nothing government and this is evidence for a do-nothing government. Do you think that is unfair or are we in a bit of a problem that the Conservative government can't act in a, a way that we would hope? Look, I, I'm, I, I don't mind the idea of a do-nothing government. I mean, <laughs> God, you know, I'd like, I, I, the you know, best uh, case scenario is a government that actually engages in meaningful uh, reform, uh, which, the, which the Morrison government, you know, is, is on the track of doing red tape and uh, it's made noises about IR and all sorts of other things. Uh, I don't think this is any more review happy than the predecessor governments, to be honest. This is, as the point has been made, this is a, a, a trend in, in, in our governments and it has been for a very long time. And there are a few reasons why you conduct a review. Firstly, as a 
covering of the proverbial because then you know difficult decisions can be uh, explained away on the basis that they were formulated after a long review process with many submissions and public consultation. A lot of the time it's to soften people up for a change to the law which uh, is going to be harsh. So the review comes out recommending terribly draconian measures and then the government decides to adopt 75% of it. So, nothing. So, or to, to, to take it, or, uh, and, or yep. best case scenario, to take a softer line. The other... And this is particularly relevant this week. The other um, functional review that I've noticed lately, which is the worst and most egregious kind, is as a blatantly political device. Um, look at the review that's been announced into Love Josh to Death, but the review that's been Josh announced... Josh Ryderberg, Treasurer of the Australia. Yes, the Treasurer <laughs> of the Commonwealth. Um, he has announced a review by the ACCC into banks passing on interest rates. Now, mm. th this is an extension of the pa pantomime we see every time rates are lowered. The, 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 it's, it's, it's like clockwork. The rates will be lowered. Um, the guessing game will start as to whether the banks will follow. One or two don't. The treasurer huffs and puffs and says, this is unacceptable. You have to you know, stop ripping off Australians. And then everybody forgets about it. This is an extension to that where there's actually an inquiry in place trying to work it out. But even if there's an inquiry, what are the recommendations going to be? That, um, that the government legislate to force them to pass on the rate cut? Are we really in the territory of, of arguing for price controls Guess on the cost what? of borrowing? Guess what? Gideon, we are. We are. So, Correct. So, but, 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 <laughs> so, anyway, that's a very off-track way of saying that this is just, it's, it's basically virtue signalling. And to do that at great public expense, I think is pretty unconscionable. So, yeah, look, we do conduct too many reviews and, and why we conduct the reviews we have to look at as well. So, um, I, I, I will bring in the other interesting thing of that happened this week was the release of the government's talking points or the accidental mm. emailing of the government's talking points. Um, very quickly, what are talking points, Gideon? Yep. Can you just talk us through what they are and then I'll introduce what, what they actually were. Okay, so talking points, broadly speaking, are a series of you know typically bullet points that you know explain the, the, the points to talk to and, and are designed to keep people who are fronting the media and everything else on Where message. do they come from? Uh, these particular ones that we'll release this week come from the Prime Minister's office. Uh, and, and, and it's a it's a it's a stupid story in a way because they go to everybody. They go to every they go to every not only every backbencher but every staff member of every backbencher. So they're easily leakable. So it's, we're not talking about you know state secrets. No, here. and definitionally they're talking but, points. But the so you're supposed to but, say them. But the, but the purpose <laughs> of them is, and this is what people need to understand. The purpose of them is, is you know, we live in a, an era of twenty four hour media cycles, Twitter and all the rest. If Somebody says something that it diverges, even a skerrick from the government's message, that's all you hear about for the next 24 hours. So if you have the assistant minister for God knows what going on, regional radio at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, a little bit tired and, you know, doesn't know the answer to a question on Gladys Liu or on, you know, ACCC or anything else, uh, and, and says something that diverges from what the, the government line is, uh, that becomes a headache for the government. So to keep everybody on message, uh, these talking points, which the Labor Party send out as well every day, even in opposition, are necessary from the point of view of keeping, you know, for, for the government's point. For but, us, it's frustrating because we get, you know, uh, 151 MPs talking off a, a song sheet. Well, let me let me tell you what I learned from the government's talking points. Um, uh, to go into the do-nothing government. And I just want to emphasise, Gideon, hmm. that this is a conservative government. I just want to, I, I just want everybody to have a conservative government in their head. They have an agenda. What is their agenda? A plan. Thank you. Well, a plan, but the, the agenda, I'm going to call it an agenda. Because I don't believe it's a plan. <laughs> um, the air agenda. Number one, outlawing uncompetitive practices from big energy, com energy companies, delivering lower oh, that, prices for Australian... This is the, quote, big stick legislation, <laughs> big stick, which yeah, I love. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ensuring multinationals pay their fair share of tax. Fair share. That's good. Stopping abuse of workers' entitlements by unions or employers. Preventing misuse of welfare and hoping more Australians into it's jobs. sounding more and more like utopia every day. And preventing child exploitation with new mandatory sentencing laws for offenders. Now, by which I some mean of the which, ABC program, <laughs> not, not the actual utopia. Some of some of these are, you know, not not uh, 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 virtuous um, ideas. But does that look like an agenda for a conservative government, Renee? No. Do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> but, but isn't this a problem? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is a problem and I think it is um, – it also smacks of what has been a consistent problem for conservatives or liberals on, uh, in government for many time, for many terms and it has been that they refuse to engage in cultural issues, they refuse to engage in cultural issues that could cause some controversy and they would much rather just do a review into the matter than actually have any strong – uh, platform on but, anything like but that. But I think it's worse than that. I think it's um, it. It doesn't strike me that there are any ideas there. Yeah. Well, no. There is no. There is no ideas. Well, let's there. go back to the list. Um, and uh, counterfactual. I was just thinking. Imagine if we did this as a counterfactual instead of saying a review. For instance, so they flicked to the Productivity Commission a review of resources legislation and its impact, uh, negative impacts on investment. Uh, in Australia, review of resources, uh, regulation, productivity commission inquiry. This is, there's been like a hundred inquiries on this over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine if instead of a review, they had have actually done something. <laughs> they had have just introduced the bill to reduce the red tape that is holding back the resources sector and holding back and killing investment and actually unleash prosperity. Imagine if, say, instead of reviewing the NDIS legislation and rules, they actually did took measures to. Uh, tackle some of the issues that are already very, very clear in the NDIS but no one wants to talk about. Imagine if instead of um, uh, having a review of Southern Basin water markets in the Murray-Darling Basin, they actually did something about it at at a time when uh, farmers are going to the wall because uh, so much water has been allocated to the environment. You could actually go through this entire list and think about all the things that they could have just gone ahead and done. But that's been a Liberal government problem for a while now where Labor has shorter terms and they're in government for much less time, but while they're there, they actually yeah, do things do. and then they get kicked out while the uh, Liberal Party seems to care more about go staying, hard go home staying in <laughs> government. But who has a longer impact on policy? I would argue that the Labor Party actually has probably more of an impact on policy than the Liberals, even though we've been in power for 70% of the time. Mm. What, what can we expect from a Conservative government? What should we want to expect from a Conservative government? Look, I, I think it's... it's uh, you know, I would love if a government ticked off you know, all 100 of the IPA's great ideas, and they've you know, made some headroads in doing that. But look, I, I think the thing to remember is, and this might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but politics is different from what we do here in Think Tank land. It no, is slow. I refuse to believe that. It is no, incremental. No, no, no. It is, it, no, no, no. In politics, <laughs> in politics, you know, politics is the art of the possible. We are in the battle of ideas. They are two different things. Politics, if you get 60% of what you want, you are having a great day. You usually get maybe 30% after all the horse trading occurs and everything else. You do need to bring people with you. There are certain sacred cows in this country that can be slaughtered, but... It, it takes some serious 
foot work. But this you know, isn't... the last time that was was done, something deeply unpopular to, that I can recall, was the GST by John Howard in the, at the 1998 election. I really can't think of anything else that was difficult to sell. But look, 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 I agree with that. I agree with that. Howard was blasted out of office by Kevin Rudd, of all people. Yeah, of course. I, I agree. That's, uh, that's the example that's made the Liberals scared. Yeah. I agree with that, but this is they are not just failing to slaughter sacred cows. Yeah. They're creating new sacred cows. Oh, that's and I look at the top two of their agenda. For the avoidance of doubt, I was in no way <laughs> defending <laughs> the laundry list. I think that list is a bit myopic and a bit unfair because it does, uh, again, ignore the red tape. Uh, no, 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 but that's – sorry, so this is their priority list. So I agree there is a – there are some things – it's like a 10-page document, right? Yeah. And there are some, some things in the back half of the document that are like, oh, I like deregulation too. But this is the things they want. Want to talk about, yeah. and the first thing they want to talk about is um, the big stick legislation. The second thing they want to talk about tax. is multinational tax. Yeah. Rather that's than that's just politically stupid. You're not paying to your strengths. No, no, paying to your strengths. No, no, but but this is what they think their strengths are. Yeah, that's just political incompetence, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And al- and also the other the other list. I mean, where where I think uh, that def- you're defending them too much, Gideon. Uh, seriously, if you go down this this list, I'm a nice guy. Uh, of of the uh, various reviews they've commissioned. Like That's in, what the Turnbull government. In some too. cases, where something is genuinely difficult. So, for instance, there's a review into nuclear energy yeah. in Australia. Now, I would actually put that in the category of things where the review serves some purpose because mm. you're trying to open up a debate where there has been no debate, and it's highly and, and you're actually trying to mobilise. Uh, civil society organisations to step forward and say, why wouldn't you have nuclear energy? I mean, the it's other way they could do that is with a sleeping dragon or dragon. <laughs> yeah, they could, <laughs> they could chain themselves to a um, uh, to a railway line. You uh, or <laughs> as opposed to other areas where they they should actually know what they need to do and they should be getting on with it. I mean, even Malcolm Turnbull brought in legislation to um, uh, remove some of the. Uh, uh, more onerous provisions of the resources legislation, the things that are allowing third-party litigation, all these sorts of things. Even, even Malcolm Turnbull bowled that up to the Senate. Um, no. Couldn't get it through the Senate, but at least he had a sure Yeah, th- 487. That, well, I think that was the Abbott government. No, no, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> no he wasn't. He, he was just... Uh, want, to, want to say that everything no, is a result of the Abbott government? Uh, I, I, I believe in my own proposal. Oh, okay. no, no, I, I no, I'm sure, anyway. One of them. So if I'll, listeners I'll want to write in. Pre-Morrison. Pre yeah. Is a, we need pre, pre-Morrison and post-Morrison. Okay, I will, we'll stand for it. But that's, that's my point. You can go through this list and say that there are some things. Um, so the retirement income system uh, would be another one where we're, we're in a, a system where they're saying we're going to have a review of the retirement in- income system but uh, where there are no plans to change the forecast rise in the superannuation guarantee to 12%. <laughs> now, if you're taking that off the table, what, what, are, you, what are you doing the review for? Yeah. Josh, Josh, you're listening. Um, I mean, that, that, that should be a no-brainer, I think, for the, um, uh, for the Liberal National Government. You would have thought so. You would have thought so. Now, speaking of... No, actually, there is no, no segue. <laughs> no, there is no segue. We have reached that point in the show, which is our books and culture segment, where we're each going to share something we've been reading, watching, or listening to. And there's been great excitement uh, this week. Let's lead off with the um, award of the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics. Absolutely. In fact, last night, as we were um, uh, as we we're recording this, um, the Nobel Prize in Economics has been handed to three separate economists, um, Abhijit Banerjee, uh, Esther Duflo, and Michael Kramer. Um, uh, Banerjee and Duflo are from MIT, and Kramer is from Harvard. Um, the Nobel Prize, that uh, what brings them all together, they are um, experimental-based development economics. So they're l- using 
um, experimental methods to figure out how to you know pull people, communities, individuals out of poverty, particularly focused in the third world. So the idea is this: you would let's say you've got two villages um, uh, in 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 a, a very poor country, say a country in Africa. You've got two villages. Um, you would do an intervention. Let's say you would increase resources on literacy or provide um, uh, fly nets or something like that to one village and you wouldn't to the other village. Now, if you design these studies properly and there's enough randomization, and that's why they're called randomized control trials, you'll be able to fairly clearly demonstrate whether an intervention works or not. Mm. So rather than um, going from uh, the sort of top down, we need to give the government of that country foreign aid and we need to give resources to change their institutions or what have you. This these the set of economists, this group of economists have pioneered the um, idea that we should really focus on micro interventions at the village or household or even individual level. Now, um, what is the significance of choosing these three as Nobel Prize winners and this research agenda as Nobel Prize? It, it reflects a what we call the empirical turn in economics. What's interesting about this is there's really no theory or model that informs that research. It's just think of an intervention, find out whether it works. Think of the next intervention, find out whether it works. There's no economic theory. There's no vision about how the world mm -hmm. functions. Now, I think, I, I think they do very, very good work. I wasn't deeply familiar with them before they got the Nobel Prize, but having looked through a number of their papers, they're obviously um, very worthy winners of the Nobel Prize. My question is, do we know more about how societies function after that work has been done? And I'm not sure that we do. If we think that economics is a distinct field that has things to say about the world, well, we sort of need to... Uh, are, are, we, are, are we learning how the world work so we're learning about theory and models and that sort of thing um but look, look a really interesting interesting nobel prize um uh that that sort of tells you the direction that the field is going and some of the traps in fact that we could fall well, into. i think it's uh, a win for common sense there, there, there is that old gag of course uh, no one can quite work out who said it which is um oh you know uh, someone was presented with with an outcome, and they said, "Well, that's all very well in practice, but how does it work out in theory?" <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, I love that. I've never heard that one. Before. Yeah, 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 no, it's, it's, I mean, you know, just speak, speaking of everything that's wrong with university, so. But there's there's sort of two. It's, it's but, let me let me expand a little bit of my my critique here. There's two ways to think about the problem of poverty. The first one is um, we don't have enough mosquito nets, we don't have enough, um, there's not enough literacy in the um, developing world. And those are genuine problems and fixing those problems make uh, you know, significant increases in people's living standards and we shouldn't be rejecting them. But the reason that those countries don't have enough mosquito nets, the reason that they don't have the education system that we have in Australia or in, in the developed world is because of institutional problems, because they might have a corrupt legal system, they might have a dictatorial government, they might have a um, bureaucracy that requires payments rather than processes. Um, and those are serious institutional problems. And I, I sort of think that when we we should be focusing more energy, um, certainly in the economics profession, on those problems. We know how countries get rich. We know why countries are rich. It's very hard 
to get from there to here. Yeah. And, some, and sometimes you've got to experiment with the interventions. But the, the, sh- well, I was about to say, sorry to cut you off, Scott, but surely they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, no, we can encourage not. institutional reform, and, and of course we know that a lot of these problems, famines, they're political problems, they're politically caused. Um, but if we are going to give humanitarian relief, I mean, I suppose it makes sense for targeted relief rather than handing oh, over a water and, and it would be good to know if it worked. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And I, that's why I don't want to diminish... It sounds like I'm diminishing, but I, I don't intend to diminish the importance of this research because mm. every single person who benefits as an individual or community or household of benefits is better off mm. and, th- and we are better off of, for having known that. But I think in the long run, the changes that are going to... The changes that need to be made and, and are being made in many... Um, Many developing countries are—they're um, institutional. Those are really hard to deal with. Mm. Yeah, so I have been going back over books on my bookshelf and came across *Pet Cemetery*, which is um, actually the first horror book by Stephen King that I ever read. I started reading Stephen King on his non-horror writings um, as a young child, actually about ten. Um, and the first time I made um, a dive into his horror books was definitely not the right book to choose first off with I chose it which is about (laughs) a thousand pages and it's just a drug-fueled mess like it's just jumps all over the place and an 11 year old doesn't really know how to interpret that book so I kind (laughs) of went no (laughs) so I didn't I didn't I went okay Stephen King horror is is not for me I like his non-horror they're great um, but later in my life I came to Pet Cemetery, which always struck me as it's a bit of an odd title um doesn't sound that scary everyone says it's one of the scariest books ever and I was like okay you pick it up and and pretty much what I don't want to give away any endings but Pet Cemetery is pretty much about a fear of death and that's it's kind of his musings on the on on the ideas of death and mortality and and the main character is is a doctor and it is actually one of the books most famous for not being finished because you can and anyone who's read this book will be able to tell you can kind of tell where it's going to go from one part of the book and you go you either go I'm along for the ride or you're just like no I cannot read that it's not I don't think I'll be able to deal with it so I know a lot of people who've gone yep Pet Cemetery, it's a great book but I can't finish it because I knew what was going to happen but the great thing about King is that you still if you do continue with the book even though you do kind of know what's going to happen it's still a surprise and you're still in there for the suspense. The title's Pet Cemetery, so I presume it ends with a lot of dead animals or something. No, don't spoil it. Uh, don't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> but I highly, highly recommend the Pet title Cemetery. Yeah. As um, uh, probably a lot of people argue that it's The Shining that he's that is his uh, scariest book, um, which is more of an exploration of insanity. Um, I would say that I find Pet Cemetery uh, scarier. He, d- he does seem to be a writer that um, uh, known known for genre, of course, but uh, gets a lot of respect in literary circles. Yeah, yeah, but, but well, he's people very about on writing. And he's also someone who actually, even though people keep attempting to do it, doesn't actually translate that well to film a lot of the time. Which so Pet Cemetery, the movie came out recently, another remake, and it was terrible. Spe- <laughs> speaking of um, doc- uh, um, uh, Stephen King adaptations, so there is a new sequel to um, The Shining coming out, in, or a, the, the sequel's already been written, but a movie of the sequel um, to The Shining, Doctor Sleep, coming out in a couple of weeks. So. Uh, it definitely is going to suffer from, you know, the long shadow that 
the shot, the original Shining yeah, film cast. Like. But it's got Ewan McGregor. He's pretty good. For me, one of the best films. As far ever. as Stephen King adaptations go, to me, nothing beats Misery. That is a, oh, a yes, one of the best it. psychological thrillers of all time. The original or the Family Guy version with Stewie. Uh, <laughs> both. They're both good. <laughs> um, so I read recently a book called Money Spinners by Annalise Nielsen, who's a, a, a journalist at Sky. Um, and it was one of those books you sort of – it was about – it's about the Banking Royal Commission basically. And it was one of those books you sort of pick up at the airport. Uh, you know, I thought, well, I hadn't followed the Royal Commission particularly closely, not as close as I should given what my day job is. But, you know, I knew vaguely things about dead, uh, f- charging fees to dead people and fees for no service and everything else. But I figured I should probably read up a little bit more and I, you know uh, – quite admire Nielsen as a, as a television journalist, so I thought it would be a, a decent read. It was a really, really great piece of literary journalism. Um, you know, it, it, for taking something that's quite dry, uh, Nielsen manages to make it engaging and funny and, um, you know, injecting a bit of humour into it, a bit of gonzo, which, as you know, Scott, is uh, one of my favourite sort of literary Very subgenres. But secondly, the, the, the substantive content of it was quite refreshing because it was very different from the usual narrative of greedy banks, free market gone wild. Um, it was, she, what, what Nielsen does is she goes back to – she focuses on the, the, the issue of financial advice and dodgy financial advice being given and, and um, as opposed to other banks as an amorphous entity and an issue. And she goes right back to the birth of what is a very young industry in the 1980s and – He's quite agnostic about the regulatory issues that have been covered elsewhere. I mean, she does mention, you know, with a lot of points that ASIC, you know, was incompetent. And in my personal view is I think that we've created banks that are too big to be regulated um, through, you know, oligopolies and through, um, ironically, regulation that squeezes out small competitors and all the rest. But, um, no, it was it was, it was was an interesting book. And for anybody who... Uh, is again it's sort of tangentially aware of the issues but wants a real deep dive into where it all went wrong uh, without without importantly without reading something that's preachy or that has a foregone conclusion or anything else uh, definitely definitely recommend this one what what was your policy take out or wasn't it that sort of so firstly, as I said, that um, I think we've created banks that are too big for anybody to regulate but I mean one th- observation that Nielsen made at one point was that um, that a lot of this was has been driven by the amount of cash that's been floating around because of compulsory superannuation. Mm. People have ended up with these huge nest eggs to their name and they go off to some dodgy bloke who says, you know, it'll, I'll maximise a return if you pump it into something that I just so happen to get a big commission from selling to you. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I, I think the, the, I mean, the, the, the macro theme is that these are very, very complex issues. They are very, very... Oh, they're, you know, they are complex. And you'll be pleased to know that the Morrison government currently has a review underway <laughs> of arrangements well, for financial advisors because <laughs> that was the one Royal Commission recommendation yeah, they couldn't, uh, couldn't another, quite another stomach. Review. yeah. <laughs> I had to punt that one down the road. No, that, that does sound like a, a good book on a very topical issue mm. uh, given that the reverberations are still working their way through the... Through the industry. Good, and we'll good, choosing, time, yeah. good choosing, Gideon. Yeah, oh, good choosing. You can come back on the we'll show. We all have our talents. Anytime <laughs> you like. Um, I have a book which I haven't read but I'm going to talk about anyway because uh, I went to a public lecture last night by the author and he had slides. So, I oh, so Well, I mean, you do know the thesis. Yeah, I've, about, I've so got it. I don't need to read it. It was it, either convincing or not convincing. It's, um, it's called The Wealth Effect, How the 
Great expectations of the middle class have changed the politics of banking crises. This is something of interest to someone, Dr. Berg, who did their PhD on uh, on the banking industry. Yeah, God knows who, but yeah. Um, so co-authors are Jeffrey M. Uh, Chiroth and uh, Andrew Walter, who was the presenter last night. He's actually at the University of Melbourne. And um, his hypothesis, um, he's, it's, it's a political economy approach. He's essentially tracked banking crises through the ages uh, right up to the GFC, and uh, it was very much marketed as being about this explains populism. But I think I think there's a bit more going on there. And in fact, it's probably the one thing he doesn't do. It's the one part that I would challenge. He made the point that the difference between the Great Depression and uh, say the GFC is that in the Great Depression, most people had very few financial assets, uh, so they were very very interested in whether they got to keep their job. Um, so they're very, very interested in the unemployment rate, somewhat interested in, in real wages. Um, but so you have these external shocks to the system. Um, and in the, in the years of the Great Depression, in much of the Western world, um, including Australia, there wasn't necessarily turmoil in the political system that, that resulted, even though there'd been a massive hit to asset values because the change in, say, housing prices didn't matter so much because only 20% of people owned houses. Mm. Fast forward to the GFC and what you have is uh, a much greater middle class, which is a good thing, but that also means that much more of their wealth is tied up with housing and uh, with various forms of financial assets, say, in Australia tied up in a super fund. And you have these massive shocks uh, to the system and this completely changes the dynamic. And he, he actually tells a a story that um, none of us like crony capitalism, none of us like the bank bailouts, but he was almost like this created a constituency mm. for the governments to throw financial prudence out the window and do whatever they could if it was seen yep. to be saving those assets for the middle class. You'll be surprised to know I agree 100% with that. So um, one of the, the thesis of my thesis um, was really about um, all that regulation that's protecting those banks um, comes from, at its very heart, the belief that if you or I as punters put money into a bank, that's a deposit that is perfectly safe. <laughs> and there's almost no way to do that unless you have the government um, back it up in some way, whether mm. implicitly or explicitly. But if the government backs it up, then the Banks get take risky decisions, so you have to stop them taking risky decisions, and it just everything flows down from that relationship between how we, as people who hold assets, and if even if it's just a bit of money, not under our bed, but in a company, and um uh, and and how that how that affects all the regulatory frameworks, um uh, and and it's just getting worse because we're holding more money, we've got more assets. Yeah, so we keep on making dumber and dumber decisions. The second part of the analysis, which is where I did start to part company, was um, he had some uh, ter terrific correlations, which I think established quite reasonably that um, the greater the uh, the shock the, of the wealth effect, like surveying countries all over the world, the greater the shock of the wealth effect, the more uh, of a populist political outcome you saw. So this is classic political economy. 
Um, so whether it be Poland or Hungary or um, in the English-speaking world, you know, kept so on Venezuela gets rich suddenly and, and oh, yes. everything. Falls strangely, the, strangely, you don't talk about Venezuela. You, <laughs> you talk you talk about Brexit and Trump. And this is where <laughs> I parted company because in this room full of people in a lecture theatre at the University of Melbourne, I think I spotted one other guy who might have been also sitting there thinking, "What's wrong with Brexit? <laughs> you know, what's, what's a, if people are having a populist revolt against this? They've actually, they've actually got some justification for all this." And I got to talk talk to Andrew afterwards and. I I said, well, yeah, but this is a clash of values as well. All the GFC did was actually uh, reveal that clash of values. Um, but it was interesting to see that that populist um, that populist response, you know, could actually be correlated to the size of the change. Mm. But then where it where it breaks down as an explanation is what populist governments actually do. Um, that's not correlated. It's it's up to them. It's still a feature of the political process. Uh, you, you can have a Trump or you can have a Victor Orban or, 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 or you can have Greece, which is all over the shop. You know, or you, or you can, can have a Boris Johnson. Or you can <laughs> have a Boris Johnson, which is about Brexit, which uh, is, is just to say we'd like to be our own country, thank you very much, and no one in Brussels is going to help us out of this mess and may have actually had something to do with causing it. But anyway, so that's the wealth effect, how the great expectations of the middle class have changed the politics of banking crises. And... Um, Oh, maybe I'll buy the book. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Berg will. I don't know. Uh, so that comes to the end of the Books and Culture segment and indeed the end of Looking Forward for another week. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you to Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Renee Gorman. Thank you. Gideon Rosner. Thanks, it was fun. Uh, and in the control room, Josh Stranger. Uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Thanks. <laughs>